Hello, thank you for joining us for this week's sermon podcast from the First United Methodist Church of Parable. to turn to Mark chapter 8 as you are able, uh, verses 27 through 38. I invite you to hear these words of Scripture. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. And so Jesus asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. And then Jesus sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and in three days rise again. Jesus said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Jesus called the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of then the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy God, it is with grateful and thankful hearts that we gather for worship. It is with great thanksgiving that we gather around your holy scriptures. God, it is with awe and humility that we read these texts again and again, praying that you would speak through these ancient words by the power of your Spirit. These things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I don't know if this has been your experience, but it has been mine, that uh, road trips, that a good long road trip can be an excellent time for a serious conversation. Have you found that to be true? A good long road trip can be an excellent time for a serious conversation. I certainly remember that to be the case when I was younger. My dad, some of you have met my dad. My parents have been here a little bit on Sundays and helped out with OMP. My dad is a huge talker. Uh, That is the way that he disciplined us. He just talked to us and talked to us until we couldn't take it anymore, right? Uh, He would lecture us and lecture us and talk and talk and talk. I can remember countless times in the car, you know, we'd be going somewhere, vacation or running errand, uh, and, and that was a great time for dad to give us a talk, to give us a lecture, to teach us about something. I sort of joke about it, but I certainly appreciate it now, and even as I got older, even now, uh, if we were to get in the car and we would ride a long way, we would have a good long conversation. Certainly that's been the same for, for Jill and I when we started dating. You know, you go on dates, or maybe you, you go on a day trip and you spend a good time in the car and you get to talk about your life and about who you are and who you hope to be when you grow up one day, right? Uh, and then you get married and you start to figure some of those things out together, and then you have kids and you have some of those conversations with them as well. 
Uh, I certainly remember some very formative times on the school bus. The school bus is a really important place of formation. Have you found that to be true as well? This is a little bit of a confession. When I was in eighth and ninth grade, this will tell you about my raisin, uh, I already knew how to play cards. All right, in eighth or ninth grade, I knew how to shuffle, I knew how to deal, I knew basic card games. We played this game back in Cave City called Pitch. Do you know what the game of Pitch is? It's kind of like spades. So you play with four people, you play with a partner across the way from you. So by eighth or ninth grade, I already knew how to play. I thought I was pretty good. So I was invited to the back of the bus to play with the seniors, right? And that was a place of great education and formation. I learned a lot of things back there. Uh, some things probably I shouldn't have. Church buses can also be a wonderful place of formation and education, serious conversations. That's one reason we like to take trips, right? And one reason we've missed them a little bit over the last year. uh, Because you get a group of youth or adults or children in a car and you ride somewhere together and you start to talk to each other and get to know one another and, and learn something new. I offer you that image today because as we begin to read from, from Mark chapter 8, and we're going to be in Mark in this, in, this, uh, in this part of the gospel for the next three weeks, I want you to imagine you know, that kind of road trip conversation, that serious talk you might have on a long journey. We've been reading from Mark's gospel. We've basically been reading a part of each chapter each week. So chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and now we're up into 8. And as we've been reading, there's been some, some of what we might call Jesus' greatest hits, these stories of healing and teaching. Uh, and they've all been around the Sea of Galilee, the region of Galilee. You know, Jesus crosses the boat and calms the storm, and, and he's gathering with crowds. And, and there's kind of this, this energy developing. Jesus is becoming something of a celebrity. Uh, you can imagine the hope and the enthusiasm, and it's all kind of happening in Galilee. That's, that's where the story has been in Mark's gospel. If you've got a Bible with a map in the back of it, you'd see the Dead Sea at kind of the lower end toward Jerusalem. You'd see the Sea of Galilee toward the upper end. And that's where Jesus' ministry began to take shape and to take form. But today, as we begin to read from chapter 8 and in the next couple of weeks from chapter 9 and chapter 10, uh, the text tells us very clearly that Jesus is beginning a trip, right? And even today in those opening verses, Jesus went with his disciples towards Caesarea Philippi and on their way, right? That's a subtle change in the tone. It's been about the crowds and the celebrations and the healing and the teaching, and now Jesus is taking his disciples on a journey, now, do you know where Jesus is taking his disciples on this journey? Where does Jesus' story end up at? It ends up in Jerusalem, right? And we have the, the advantage of knowing how this story goes. We have the advantage of knowing where this story is headed as we think about Holy Week and as we even think about Easter. But, but put ourselves in the place of the disciples. They don't really know where they're going or why they're going there. They just know that they're going on a journey. And so as Jesus gets the disciples sort of alone, away from the crowds, and he can talk to them more directly, he begins to have much more serious conversations. And I hope you heard it as I was reading today. The tone today from Jesus is just very different from what we've got the last few weeks. The last few weeks have been kind of a celebration, a bit of a party atmosphere, a joy and excitement. And now Jesus asks them, hey, who do they say that I am? Right? Who do they say that I am? And so the disciples say, well, some people think you're John the Baptist. Right? Some people think you're Elijah. Some people think you're one of the prophets. It's interesting. That's kind of what they think. And then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? 
That's kind of a hinge point for this text, and it's really a hinge point for the Gospel of Mark because the, the story is, is less now about the crowds, about who do they say that I am, and now the story is about the disciples, those who are closest to Jesus, those who know him best, and those who are supposed to understand what he is doing in the world. And so I invite you to kind of put yourselves in the, in the place of the disciples to think about this journey with Jesus and to think about this very direct question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Well, Peter, the always outgoing and, and, and thoughtful Peter, Peter pipes up, right? And he says, you're the Messiah. You're the Messiah. And then what does Jesus say? He says, shh, don't tell anyone. Let's think a little bit about why this is happening and what's going on here. First of all, uh, we read, of course, the word Messiah. We read the word Messiah as thinking and, and speaking about almost exclusively Jesus, right? When we hear the word Messiah, we think of Jesus, the one who has come to, to save us in his death and resurrection. But it's, it's really important for you to know, and I want to do just a little bit of teaching here, that, that the word Messiah that's being used by Peter here is certainly not unique to Jesus, Right, this is a word that's used across the Old Testament. It's a generic word that just means Savior, but, but not even Savior in a highly religious sense. Right? It just means the one who is, is taking care of and guiding and leading the people. In fact, really what the word Messiah means is someone who's been anointed, someone who's been chosen. Right? And in fact, this word Messiah in the Old Testament is used to refer to all of the kings of Israel. Right? When a king is, is chosen and they're anointed by God, they're anointed for this particular task, then their new title is Messiah. Right? The kings across the Old Testament are messiahs. Right? So it's not a strictly religious term in the way that we might think about with Jesus. In fact, the word Messiah goes even further. There's this really strange part in the Old Testament where the people of Israel, of course, have been exiled and they've been, they've been taken into Babylon and, and they've been abused and, and, and harmed in, in such a serious way. And then Persia comes in and, and they take over Babylon and the king of Persia, he allows those who are in exile to return to Jerusalem. His name is Cyrus the Great. And Cyrus the Great, even though he's a Persian king, he has this wonderful reputation in the Old Testament because he allows the people to return from exile to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple. Even Cyrus, someone who's not a king, who's not a Jew, even Cyrus, a Persian, is called a Messiah. A Messiah, right? So when you hear the word Messiah, you should think about a political leader, you should think about a military leader, you should think about a king, someone with royalty, someone who guides and, and oversees and cares for the people. So why does Peter use this term to talk about Jesus? Well, remind ourselves, right, first century Rome, Peter and his disciples, they're Jews, but they're living under, uh, under the care and direction of the Roman authorities, so first century Jews, they do not fully have their freedom in the way that they would like. Like the Roman authorities, the Roman guards, the Roman powers that we read so often about are, are overseeing them, are running their lives and are taxing them. And so when Peter says that you are the Messiah, I mean, he's imagining a sort of political military leader like we would have had in the Old Testament. Peter is imagining the crowds and the energy and the healing that come with Jesus. He's imagining this growing and growing and growing and that Jesus would be the one to lead this revolt against Rome. 
you are the Messiah. You're the one that's going to take back our, our people. You're the one that's going to that's get rid of these Roman authorities and powers. You're the one that's going to make our life sort of worthwhile and good again. You can hear the, the hopeful enthusiasm when Peter says, you are the Messiah. You're the one that's going to fix our situation. Well, that's all good and great, and in fact, even maybe that's the right answer. But just as soon as, as Peter says, you're the Messiah... Then Jesus tells the disciples this. The Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes and be killed. Now, we've been reading in Mark's Gospel on purpose, right? We've been reading some of these highlights, these great stories of Jesus, the miracles and the healing and the, and the good news and the, and the confidence and the hope that comes with Jesus. Just imagine with Peter and the others, their expectations about Jesus and their future following him, that, that Jesus is only going to get more and more popular and do greater and greater things. Like the sky is the limit with Jesus. And then he says this. I'm going to go undergo suffering, I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to be put to death. Now again, we have the luxury of knowing how the story goes. We know what, what Jesus is referring to. But if we were in Peter's shoes, if we were in the shoes of the other disciples, can you imagine the shock and the disappointment? And so Peter says what any of us would have said. He says, like, Jesus, what are you, what are you talking about? What do you mean you're going to be rejected and put to death? Like, look how popular you are. Look how great things are going. People love you. You're healing. You're teaching. Like, like Jesus, we've got a great future together. What do you mean you're going to be, you're going to be killed? And then Jesus turns to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan, for you're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. This, this moment here in Mark chapter 8, the entire story kind of shifts from this optimism and hope to now this very hard teaching that the same one who's gathered these crowds and, and healed these people, that now he's telling us we're going we're gonna to see him be put to death. And he even calls Peter, I mean, this is like Peter the rock, Peter on whom the church will be built. He calls Peter Satan. Right? He says, get behind me, Satan. For you're not thinking about divine things, you're thinking about human things. This seems to be some indication of why Jesus tells the disciples not to tell anyone who he is. Because whenever Peter says, you are the Messiah, Jesus immediately says, shh, don't talk about it, right? And it seems to be that the reason for that is, is that the disciples kind of misunderstand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, or at least they have a hope about a Messiah, a political leader, a military leader, a royal leader. They have a hope about a Messiah that Jesus is not necessarily going to fulfill. Instead, Jesus is, is going to be put to death. And so he tells his disciples, be careful how you talk about me and what will happen. Now, Peter's recoil from this entire situation is understandable. I mean, all of us, it's kind of a human reaction. All of us, when we are told something bad is going to happen, something painful is going to happen, then we would sort of, we would sort of step back. And so we, we join Peter in his frustration with Jesus. Of course we would want to avoid suffering. Of course this is a ludicrous idea that Jesus would be put to death. And so here in Mark chapter 8, Jesus is overturning for Peter and the disciples, but also for us. Jesus is overturning those Old Testament ways of thinking about a Messiah. 
Jesus is overturning our, our notions of what it means for God to save us. No longer through royalty or through political victory or through a military, but now through death and through suffering. And so when we hear Peter's frustration, we ought to kind of see ourselves in Peter. All of us want a, a Savior, but very few of us want the suffering that Jesus says comes with it. Now, to make this even more challenging, after Jesus has said this, he turns to the disciples, the, the small crowd that are gathered there, and he tells them, hear this, if you want to follow me, then you must deny yourself and take up your cross. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for the sake of the gospel will save it. What will it profit them to gain the whole world if they forfeit their life? Take up your cross and follow me. Of course, this is, allusion, this is an allusion to the, to the scene in the last week of Jesus' life. You remember that Jesus is, is beaten and scourged. He's given the crown of thorns, and then he's tasked with carrying his own cross. And he becomes so weak and so tired that, that someone else has to come alongside him. So, so to take up your cross and to carry it literally means to, to prepare for your own death. And So Jesus tells those disciples that if you want to follow me, you must take up your cross. It's hard to overestimate just what a shocking, terrifying, and disappointing moment this must have been for the disciples. All that joy and energy and hope has turned to talk of sacrifice and service and even death. Of course, the good news here, as Jesus sees it, the good news here is that if you would live in this way, if you would take up your cross and follow him, that you would get to trade your current life, your, your current expectations, you would get to trade them for life that really is worth living. Notice all of the, the financial terms that Jesus uses here, right? Profit and gain, forfeit and exchange. What it's saying is, is that your usual ways of measuring your life, your, your wealth and your success and your career, we might even take it further, your, your popularity and your social media following, all of those ways that you measure your life, you can, you can give those things up and you can instead measure your life by this one new metric, which is taking up your cross and following me. And if you could live in this way, like you would find a richness of life that, that so outweighs all those more trivial things that we do. If you want to really live your life, then you've got to give it away. You've got to lose it for the sake of others. This is a radical and difficult teaching by Jesus. And we need to be reminded that when Jesus says to take up your cross, he's talking about nothing less than dying to yourself. Taking up your cross is not just coming to church on Sunday, though of course we want you to do that. It's not just being involved in a Bible study or, or helping out when you can or, or, or building flood buckets whenever there's a natural disaster. All those things are important. Jesus is talking about something so much more profound and challenging. It's about giving up your life, your expectations, your hopes, the ways in which we compare and compete with one another, and instead following Him, even unto death. If you've been following along with us in the Gospel of Mark, if you've been excited about those stories we've read the last few weeks, then you can sort of understand the reluctance with which the disciples receive this news in Mark chapter 8. 
Jesus gets them on a road trip, gets them headed toward Jerusalem and says, I've got something difficult to teach you. Some sort of insider knowledge. This is not the sort of thing that the crowds want to hear. This is not the sort of thing that will make us popular and successful. I've got something difficult to tell you. If you're going to follow me, you've got to take up your cross. This is, for me, sort of the heart of discipleship. It's a challenging text. It's a text that you've probably heard many other times, but it's one that never sort of wears out that we have to return to again and again in each stage of our life. I'm often thinking about, like, who is it that I know that has, has taken up their cross and followed Jesus? Like, who do we know in our lives and in our world who lives in this way? What does it actually mean to do this? And so I want to close by reminding you and teaching you again uh, about the life and the ministry of, of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, I talk about Bonhoeffer about every two or three months in my sermons. My favorite uh, illustration and topic, I mean, uh, he means so much to me, his life and his ministry and his writing and teaching. And he's really particularly good on these themes and these topics. And so I wanted to end today talking a little bit about his teaching on this subject. Bonhoeffer, if you haven't heard me talk about him before, uh, was a young German minister. He was raised by a very bright and affluent family. He had a chance to finish uh, multiple graduate degrees, including in theology, very young in his life. And so he began to serve as a minister about the time that Hitler was coming to power. Uh, this allowed Bonhoeffer to leave the country. He went to London for a while. He went to the United States. He was given every opportunity uh, to, be, to be as far away as possible from the danger found there in Germany. Uh, but he chose to go back, and he chose to go back because he felt it so important that he helped to lead the German church in a faithful witness against Hitler and the Third Reich. And so he pastored churches, he pastored illegal churches, he led an illegal underground seminary where they were teaching and training young pastors even when they were considered to be uh, against the law in what they were doing. And he actually led, was a part of a group of people who sought to overturn Hitler and his rule and even sought to have Hitler put to death. He led a really dramatic and complicated life. But I find him just an incredible witness and uh, a wonderful example of this sort of all-out commitment, this sort of carrying your cross for the sake of Jesus Christ. Bonhoeffer's writing on this theme in particular, what it means to follow Jesus in difficult times, uh, is particularly profound and helpful. And so I wanted to share with you today uh, what Bonhoeffer says about following Jesus and how he describes it as costly. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance, Baptism without discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, without the cross, and without Jesus Christ. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the, the disciples leave their nets and follow him. This grace is costly because it calls us to follow and it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. It's costly because it costs a man his life, and it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. It's costly because it cost God the life of his son. And what has cost God this much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it's grace. Because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. 
Friends, his teaching in Mark chapter 8, I wish I had an eloquent or, or trivial way to make it a little less intimidating. But I'm going to remind you today, just as Mark did in his writing, as Bonhoeffer did in his work in ministry, that following Jesus is an invitation to give up our entire lives. To give up our entire lives. To carry our cross in service and sacrifice to Christ and to one another. And if you could answer that call, it would give you a life so rich with meaning and joy and peace. It wouldn't seem like a sacrifice at all. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, we give thanks for the sacrificial witness of those who have come before. Jesus himself, of course, as well as his disciples. God, we are always intimidated by the call to carry our own cross. It is hard for us to imagine ourselves in that way. And yet, God, we pray today for the courage, for the courage to follow you, not just in small ways, but for the courage to give up our entire lives for the sake of this good news. These things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about First United Methodist Church by going to our website at www.fumcparagold.org. May God bless you this week.